Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We're ready. <laughs> We're ready, huh? Yeah. We're ready like Freddie. <laughs> well, you know, about myself, it's kind of a long story. My name is Ryan Out. That's my adopted name. And uh, my mom was married two, three, four times. You know, funny thing about uh, Santos, Santos is saint mm-hmm. in uh, Italy, Portugal, Spain, and France. And my grandfather was an orphan. They found him when he was an hour old in Lisbon. And then uh, grew up there in the convent. He, he knew how to read and write, and they give you a, a, a profession mm-hmm. or whatever. And he was a book, he was a shoemaker, I think. Yeah, shoemaker. And then uh, they came over here in about 19, about 1902, mm-hmm. three from Lisbon. This is Al. After months of hearing rumors, of talking to an acquaintance of an acquaintance, to connecting to Danny Pulverosa, the San Leandro barber who knows everyone, I finally found Al. Al is perhaps the only Santos left. Actually, based on my afternoon with him in his San Ramon house in the East Bay, he seems like he really is the only one left. I was hoping he might be able to shed some light on the family, on what went wrong that led Stuart to becoming a murderer. If anyone would know, at this point, it would be him. And, just as interesting, he is the one who still makes the Santos Linguisa, based on the original recipe, with some of the original equipment. And before the afternoon was over, he'd offer to cook some for me and my podcast manager, Matt. From KCBS Radio and Odyssey, I'm Natalia Gurevich, and this is The Sausage King. Episode 7. Al. I finally met Al on an unseasonably warm afternoon in early March. The week before, I got a call from Danny, the older barber I'd been haranguing since I heard he knew Al on a personal basis. Much to my surprise, Danny called me this time. I dared not hope for too much, but as soon as I answered, he said, guess who I have with me? And without waiting for an answer, he put Al on the phone. Al sounded much younger than his 94 years. After a few minutes, he was inviting me over to one of his many homes scattered across California. This one, just a reasonable 45 minutes away. At the end of a well-kept cul-de-sac, Al greeted us at the front door of his large house. He was dressed like a retired mafioso, in white slacks and a short-sleeved white button-down. 
With his distinguished and prominent nose and full head of white hair, he looked the part. Ushering us into his living room, he promptly sat in a high back chair and launched us into his family history. When his grandparents immigrated to the United States from Portugal at the turn of the century, they took a ship that journeyed all the way down to the tip of South America and then swung around the Pacific Ocean. The journey took 257 days, according to Al. At the time, children were sent below deck to wait out the trip, but there was a sickness going around. And in order to avoid detection, his grandma hid her eight-year-old son under her ample skirts, which was the fashion at the time. They finally landed in Hawaii in 1911, and there, Al's mother was born. In 1914, they settled in San Leandro, California. And uh, I spent a lot of time there later, but they built a home. In San Leandro? Right in, yeah, 1742 Washington Avenue. Okay, yeah. Right where they are right now. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, still there. And soon after, Al's grandma, who was an amazing cook, started the linguisa business. And at first, it was a scrappy operation. So what I do, he had no car, no pickup, no nothing. They started business right there at 7042 and had bought the place next door and they developed it. But he would take the bus and then go up to, they've changed Centerville and all the little, I can't even think of their names, the little towns in mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And he'd stop by and say, what do you got? I have a seller. He'd get a suitcase and maybe have <laughs> 10 pounds in there, maybe 15 pounds. He'd stop and he said, ah, we make that. What do you, I don't want to sell. What do you ask? We make that stuff. <laughs> so he'd say, I'll tell you what, I give you five pounds. And I come back next week and you sell it, you pay me, you don't sell it, it's okay. Oh, consignment. What could be better than that for, you know, have a product and don't have to pay for it, you can sell it. Yeah. So he come back and, hey, Mr. Sousa, how you doing? Well, hey, maybe I'll take another five pounds. So, yeah. And then that's, that's how, how he, he started the business. That's how he grew it. He would go around with sausage and a suitcase. A suitcase. <laughs> Drop it off to all the little Portuguese, little Portuguese people. Eventually, they bought a pickup to deliver the sausages in. And when Al's mom wound up getting kicked out of school for her antics at just age 12, she started helping with the deliveries. As the business grew, so did the family. Al was born and was eventually adopted by one of his mother's husbands, which is why he has a different last name. He and Tweety were cousins, although Al was a good 10 to 15 years older. They lived just across the street from each other. And at the time, all the extended family were very close. Although Tweety eventually took over the business in the 1950s, Al maintains that Tweety's brother, Tony, was the real brains behind the operation. Tony was smart. I yeah. mean, they wanted to run for mayor. I mean, he was just a sharp guy. Tweety, on the other hand, was Tweety. And Tweety is for Tweety. <laughs> I mean, we had a poker club, and uh, all the women said, they all love Tweety. She said, but I, want, I wouldn't want my daughter to marry or be... Uh, He's just so bad. One guy said, I'm going to buy me a bar and put Tweety as a bartender. He said that place would be packed just for his, his bar. Then he shared something I hadn't heard before, that initially the factory was actually supposed to go to him, not Tweety. The factory was mine. Mm -hmm. And uh, my grandma, when my grandpa was dying, he made a promise to my grandma I, I get the factory, they want to, 
I said, don't worry about that. I had my own business, and I don't even think some of the family knew this. I don't care now. They're gone. But they, uh, I let them have it. And then it got to the point where I say they took advantage of my grandma because there wasn't enough money, and they've, so they finally, they finally bought my grandma up. Al remembered a shocking amount of details from his family's past. But there were moments when he'd get off track or his recollection of certain dates would get mixed up. He was preparing to move his girlfriend, who'd been diagnosed with dementia, up to his house to live with him to care for her. And at certain points throughout our interview, when one of my questions stumped him or he'd be searching for a time and date, he'd joke that he was starting to get dementia too, that it must be contagious. But for all the things that were growing fuzzy in his memory, Stuart stands out more vividly than the rest. Al didn't spend too much time with Tweedy's sons, Stuart and his two brothers, while they were little. He remembered that when Stefan died, he was hit by a car while on his motorcycle at full blast. Stefan held on for a few days, his body still sending out signals that he was, in some way, aware of what was going on. Other than that, Al doesn't remember much of the boy's childhoods. He had his own roofing business to manage and his own family to handle. But he was well aware of the family's dynamics from the beginning, particularly where Stuart was concerned. Al believes that Stuart was suffering from some type of mental disorder at the time of the killings. But even before then, he knew something was off. In the early days, he believed Stuart was a narcissist. The narcissistic person feels they have entitlement. Mm-hmm. And that entitlement, for some reason, goes with uh, empathy, none, zero empathy. So you take the combination of narcissism, entitlement, together, it's a real problem. Yeah. Where do you think that entitlement came from? Pardon? Where do you think the entitlement came from? Narcissism. That's, I would say this. Narcissistic people, I thought, I kind of studied it Mm -hmm. at one time. And I I said, that's me. (laughs) The only thing is, I get a big heart. That's probably the Latin in me. I I have empathy, a lot of it, maybe too much of it, (laughs) in comparison to a narcissist that has none. So you don't... He is not... He is not capable in getting your shoes because there is no love there. Uh, you know, uh, okay, entitlement, you're entitled to do certain things, of course, but you're not entitled to make that final decision without help of your, of your mother, your brother. Your, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They don't do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he, I think he's not a narcissist, but he's, he was worse. It was then that Al, in a way, was able to answer some of the questions I had about Stewart's mental health, questions that arose during the trial and weren't definitively answered. According to Al, the Santos family was plagued with mental illnesses, disorders, and substance abuse through multiple generations. The point I'm trying to make now is this. And there's nobody alive that I have to worry about now. Tweety and... There's seven in that family. Bachi was the youngest. Dope killed him. 
on the other part of the family, dope, suicide, kill them. According to Al, the majority of his cousins died in their 40s or 50s from health problems, like Tweety from cancer or his brother Tony from a brain hemorrhage. But the other segment of the family all suffered from different problems. One of his favorite cousins, Lou, she cracked up, according to Al, and was given electroshock treatment. She had become paranoid, convinced that her husband was trying to kill her and was following her. He relayed all of this history to officials from the DA's office when Stuart was arrested and set to go on trial. And it was one detail about his cousin Lou's behavior that stayed with him from that conversation. And it stayed with me too. And then in the house, she had a, a gas cock there for one of the heaters or something. She got toothpaste and filled, filled up the uh, cracks. When Stuart was in jail, not in prison, in jail here, mm-hmm. he asked for toothpaste, like 10, and he started sealing up everything. Even before the shooting, Al had suspected Stuart was suffering from some type of disorder, either bipolar or perhaps manic-depressive. He'd even gone so far at one point that he'd written a letter to Stuart's mom, Shirley, who he says he's still on good terms with, and Stuart's doctor. In the letter, Al told the doctor that he was certain Stuart was suffering from some disorder and needed to get help to really take a look at himself. It doesn't sound like anything came of it. It wasn't brought up again until that visit from DA officials preparing for Stuart's trial. I said, so what do you want to know? He said, I want to know about this this letter here. Mm -hmm. What about it? Did you write it? I said, yeah. I have good penmanship. And I I said, uh, said, yeah, that's me. Are you a doctor? No. Well, you you saying that he was manic depressant or bipolar? I said, I'm a lot better than a doctor. (laughs) I said, I know when he was born. I know when he was five, when he was seven, when he was nine, when he was 12. I know when he was 20, when he was, I, I know when he shot. But the doctor, like, I know him. Mm-hmm. I, I know the man. And he's mental. But Al's concerns didn't really start in earnest until after Tweedy had died. Al remembers when he attended the funeral. Stanley, Stuart's younger brother, was still alive and had just gotten back from treatment for drug addiction. So Tweedy died and... Those kids, I don't know what they're going to do. Tweedy was always on the hook for something. He never, not a good businessman. He's just a player. Yeah. So after Tweedy died, um, three of us are standing by the coffin. And I said, I got to take help out somehow. Because I do the family so well. I'm Uncle Tony. And I said, uh, hey, Stanley. And you're standing there looking at your dad. He just spent 35 grand to get you straight. He said, Al, I'll never be on that stuff. And I said, tell your dad that. And he said, Pop, thank you for getting me off the hook. I'll never get on that stuff again. And I says, well, that's good. Stuart, at that time, could care less mm. in a way that when Tweedy was dying, he had the young gal, lover, taking care of him at his beautiful home. 
and as he wanted, he appreciated what that guy was doing for him. And he said, I want her, he told Stuart, I want her to uh, live here free for two years. You pay the taxes or whatever. Stuart didn't like that. That's when I knew, well, I knew before. I, I knew Stuart had a problem, mental. Yeah. You know, I don't. My, uh, my pay grade isn't high enough to accuse anybody of being anything except the fact that I've been around a long time and I've seen a lot. And uh, symptoms are a big thing to me. You put symptoms together, it, it kind of tells you a story, doesn't it? And even though Al had never seen evidence of Stewart's violence, he'd heard enough to know it was a problem. He had a temper, right? I'm, I've never seen his temper. He grabbed his mother a couple of times by the neck. I wasn't there. Oh. He wanted to do it in front of me. But I heard about that. So he did lose his cool a couple of times. But that didn't stop Al from helping Stuart keep the factory going after Tweedy died. It was family and his family's business. So I gave him, I think it was $25,000. To kind of help cover the debts? Help, help the cause and maybe... Uh, show them what business is like, get in the trenches and learn it. Alice speaking of both Stuart and his younger brother, Stanley. They were supposed to share the business 50-50, but that, as we know, didn't work. But despite the persistent rumors I heard while reporting on this story, Al maintains that Stuart couldn't have had anything to do with Stanley's death, that he'd been staying over at his girlfriend's house the night Stanley died. I had a powwow with Stanley and Stuart because Stanley told me he was afraid of, Stanley told me he was afraid of Stuart. So I, I, I get all three of us together. I says, what's going on here? He said nothing. He says, hey, back on dope. And uh, Stanley says something about, I'm giving my half to my girlfriend's brother. Or something. I, I don't know what's going on there. Mm-hmm. So I says, Stanley says, that's time you, you better go back to Minnesota, I guess. He said, I'm going. Well, that's the night he got knocked off. He had his suitcase and everything. According to Al, Stewart had been over at his girlfriend's house at the time of the death. No, they were in bed. She, her folks had just died, or her dad had died and left him in the house. So Stewart was shacked up there for a couple of days in the new house, and, and uh, they were in, in bed when... Uh, Sally got knocked off around 1.30 in the morning. See, you don't think maybe the girlfriend could have covered for him? Who? The girlfriend could have covered for Stuart. Oh, no, she, no, no, not at all. Hmm. No, he, he wasn't, not, he was not, I know the story. But this is the only time Al will emphatically defend Stuart's innocence. When Al paid Stuart the 25 grand, he effectively helped him get his start with the business and left him to it. But he wasn't surprised Stuart started running into problems with the inspectors. According to Al, Stuart just didn't have the business savvy to foster the right relationships, play the game that needed to be played, or at least the way Tweedy and his brother Tony ran things. Tweedy and Tony were sharp, sharp guys. They, they know the street. They know the people. Not, not Stuart. Stuart was straight forward. I mean, he... 
when you're dealing in the business like that, and you have inspectors, okay? Inspectors, how much money they make. They're in a pretty good level with construction level, maybe, whatever. And then pretty soon they, uh, you have to give them this, an office. They come and check you out. They see Santa, doing pretty good. They're sending a lot of product around. Pretty soon they say, uh, they come in and say, hey, why don't you try the linguista? You give them uh, two pounds. Pretty soon they're there and they grab five pounds and say, hey, see you guys later. Then finally you have to say, hey, five pounds. Oh, oh, yeah. Then they pay for it. This is how things start. Okay. And then you have somebody like Stuart. That he's, he's not going to play those games. He doesn't know about the game. He doesn't know about the, the trenches in the street. I haven't heard from any other source that this is something inspectors do or that this would have necessarily helped in this situation. But I can see what Al is saying. A certain kind of attitude is needed when dealing with inspectors. This doesn't mean a willingness to bribe with sausages. More likely, it just means that people who are more likely to be generous like that are friendlier and more open to negotiating, compromising, which Stuart was definitely not. Stuart was absolutely not savvy enough to float a few pounds of sausage over to inspectors, nor was he affable enough to have an even-tempered conversation with them. The conflicts began small. The inspectors wanted them to treat the oak chips they used to burn the smoker differently, or hose down an area that had already been hosed. But Al could see things escalating quickly. Well, that went on and on. I said, you, I don't know how to tell you this. I thought you'd do better to work around these guys. No. My book says, if we don't get along with somebody, you get rid of them. Get rid of them until you get somebody. Given all this, and Al's long-standing suspicions that Stuart was suffering from some kind of mental disorder, means that while he was ultimately shocked when the shooting happened, he wasn't surprised. The visit with Al shed a lot of light on the Santos family and what might have contributed to Stuart's actions. But I couldn't end my time with him without uncovering more about his secret side hobby that he had passed down to his children, ensuring its legacy. So tell me, you you have your own business, but you still you still make the sausage on the side. We do it just just. In fact, uh, we're gonna make it on the April 11th. I just talked to my cousin because. I need, uh, we need some more linguistics. <laughs> and my grandson, a couple of months ago, he made some best linguistics I ever had. Really? I said, Brett, God, this is good. Well, I screwed mine up. I smoked it too much. My my son's news smoker, hmm. that was my fault. So. Do you have the smoker here, or is it? I have my I have one at the ranch. Ah, okay. And uh, my son's finishing his house. So I'm I'm hundred... dying to know the recipe you use. Is it the, the same recipe? Pardon me. The recipe that you use. Yeah. What about it? Is it the same one from? Yeah. In fact, uh, I, I saw it the other day. My mother wrote this in pencil. The recipe Al uses was passed down to him from his mother presumably from her mother, his grandmother. He has it on a piece of paper, written in pencil. He knows it so well, he doesn't even need to look at it anymore. But the other day when he was cooking with his son, his son pointed out something surprising. 
we're not making the same as the recipe. I said, well, there's a recipe right there. My mother, my mother wrote it down. It says right there, it says, wine, and uh, put this with it, the wine. Yeah, what are you saying? We've been buying that wine vinegar for 50 years. Yeah, but that isn't what the recipe says. <laughs> I said, well, they, we buy it, wine vinegar. We, we used to make the wine, put our own vinegar in the whole way. Oh, okay. God. But I got it. And uh, anyhow, my mother had it. Al wouldn't share with me the exact recipe, of course. I expected nothing less. He told me that once a food manufacturing company offered his mother 25 grand to give them the recipe and work with them for a couple months to recreate it, she declined. But even though he wouldn't divulge the details of the recipe, he was generous enough to offer to make us a little meal. Maybe you want to taste that linguisa? We would love to taste the linguisa. Oh, yeah, put this way. I'll throw one in. Al ushered us into his kitchen. The whole house was illuminated with natural light through sliding glass doors that opened the back of the house onto the yard and the sprawling hills behind it. His kitchen felt similar to my grandparents' kitchen in Orange County, which was built in the early 60s. White tiled countertops and blonde wood cabinets. Al grabbed two links of linguisa from his fridge. The batch he'd made, that he claimed he'd screwed up by smoking them a tad too long. Regardless of this little mistake, I was sure that it would still taste closer to the real thing than I would ever get. So how do you, uh, how do you usually start preparing it? What's the process? How do you prepare it? Yeah, what's the process? Well, what we do is... Um, he began so slicing the links with a sharp knife, exclaiming that normally he'd cook them in a so pan hole, although you could bake them too. Yeah, They're best served sandwiches. with some nice French bread, like a sandwich. Easy, you know? He didn't have any bread, though, so this seemed fine for the experience. He tossed the slices onto a pan on the stove, and they quickly began oozing dark orange-colored oil. I took the pans from the linguistic factory. Oh, yeah. The stainless steel pans. Mm -hmm. And uh, get that. Mm -hmm. Then we get the pork. Mm -hmm. And we trim it all up inside and clean it up and good. Mm -hmm. And then we uh, grind it. Okay. Then we get our wine vinegar, salt, tons of salt. Mm -hmm, of course. Pepper. Garlic, that's about it. It's on, it's on the tag, what it is. And uh, the secret, you got to be Portuguese to mix it because we mix it by hand. We don't use gloves or anything. I see. So if you don't have that, you know, if you're not you Portuguese. take a white guy like that, you wouldn't get the same flavor. Yeah, we, we don't do much well, I'll tell you what. He stirred them occasionally, <laughs> talking all the while. I should have known I was Italian because every, play, every time I go to Italy or any place. I stood by, observing how the sausage changed in color, with my cousin in his house. caramelizing in the pan while he cooked them. The room soon filled with their smoky scent. I asked Al what he'd normally eat with the sausage, and he said most of the time, you really don't need much else. The flavor is enough on its own. But a lot of people like to add a little mustard. This sausage is the kind of thing that goes well for almost any occasion, he said. People like to eat it for breakfast, but it also makes a great sandwich along with a nice beer, and it's a really satisfying meal. Over the last several decades, Al has taught his kids and now his grandkids how to make the family's linguisa, passing along the tradition with dedication. He doesn't sell it, but instead likes to make it for fun and distribute it among friends and family throughout the year. 
After about 10, maybe 15 minutes, after the edges of the sausage had browned and turned crispy, he deemed it ready and grabbed a paper plate and a couple of forks for myself and my podcast manager, Matt. Standing at his little kitchen bar, we each dug in, and I was unprepared for what the experience would actually be like. So this is it. This is like kind of the one of the culminating moments of yeah, the Sausage right. King podcast, Natalia. This is a big, big moment. I know. This is really very exciting. She has taken the bite, chewing, thinking. Mm. Really smoky. That is really yeah, really smoky, salty. Mm. It's but super flavorful. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Wow. At first, the flavor was almost overwhelming. Unbelievably smoky, salty, and something else I couldn't really describe. Except that it reminded me of similar things I've eaten made by my Russian Jewish relatives. But then, after the first bite, the flavor unfolded a bit more, and I was able to appreciate it more. It's the kind of thing that just gets better the more you eat it. I could definitely see this being really good for breakfast. It's like, it's really smoky. Salty, like you said, but it's got a nice kind of mm, acidic quality, which I'm guessing is the wine. So it's a, it doesn't taste too like you know meaty or heavy, honestly. Mm-mm, I was thinking the same thing. It yeah. doesn't. It doesn't like leave much of a thick or heavy aftertaste. Mm-hmm. So when you when you create it or when you prepare it for a sandwich, like you were saying, would mm-hmm. you prepare it cold, no. or would you cook it up a little bit? Well, I do. Depends on, like this one here, we smoked it a little too much. Kind of shriveled up, we don't do that for the public. The best way to do it, for us, we make a boat out of aluminum mm-hmm. and put it in the oven for about 45 minutes. And it just bakes itself, it makes it a little more tender. Mm. Then you get the little sandwiches, the uh, fresh bread, you know, really, but you don't want the the little sandwiches, and I don't see them much anymore, so I get the big ones and cut it in half. And it, but you got to get the, the right consistency of the heat, crispy, mm-hmm. and two little sandwiches and two little ones in there, and a, and a beer. I mean, oh God, <laughs> it was just great. No. Yeah. No, I definitely you could see that. I could definitely see this going well with a nice beer. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a beer with me but I could picture eating it at a barbecue on some nice soft French bread like he was saying. It truly was unlike anything I'd ever eaten before. It's almost kind of reminding me of like a thicker, better bacon. Like that's kind of the the vibe that I'm getting. Mm, yeah, maybe a little bit. Al was modest about his own attempt at making the linguisa. It seemed like the original linguisa made in the old factory was the standard to which he held himself no matter how much time had passed. You want that off, please? Do I want the last piece? Mm-hmm. Hell yes, I, I want the last more. piece. I could cook that up. Nah, <laughs> no, this is good. Huh? This is we plenty. We can't stay forever. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we need everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is really good. Thank you. I have heard so much about this sausage from every well, single that's, person. That's not really good. It, it's okay, but it's uh, the flavor is that what it is. It's but. closer than anything I've come across. You know, like in terms of what the original might have oh. tasted like. Like, everyone I've interviewed talked about how much they loved it, but are sad that 
the Santos linguisa doesn't exist anymore. I think we made the best in, in that uh, our technique was good and the, the ingredients we used and the inspectors, all the inspectors said, man, you guys make the best of all. You know, that, that's the guy that you had to give that one. You know, After we finished eating and before we left, Al proudly showed off photos of his family, his children and their children. He had piles of personalized calendars they had made for him, showing the new generations all together. In all the photos, they looked happy, gathered around their patriarch with smiles beaming. Despite the trauma and mental health struggles his family had dealt with in previous generations, Al, the last Santos, had built an impenetrable branch of the family. And under his care, they and the sausage that was a part of their legacy appeared to be thriving. This has been a long and complicated story to tell. The impact of what Stuart had done more than 20 years ago that fateful day in June is still felt by the San Leandro community and by the government agencies who had to pick up the pieces of their departments following the tragedy. Too many safeguards have gone in since then. Um, I think when, when threats are made or when suspicion like that, I think they're more likely to react and say, ooh, this is something we gotta watch. Our investigators don't carry weapons and they're not um, trained to carry weapons safely. So um, there was some discussion of, you know, should we arm our, our investigators so they can protect themselves? The impact of his actions were felt by nearly everyone connected to this case. And as this story comes to an end, I've come to my own conclusions too about what the case's legacy meant for the people at the center of this story, the inspectors. The Sausage King is researched, written, and narrated by me, Natalia Gravich. Matt Pittman, Don Bastida, and Eric Brooks are our producers. With production, sound design, and editing by Matt Pittman. Cover art created by Dre Irabaran. Social media by Greg Wong. Jennifer Selig is brand manager for KCBS Radio. The Sausage King is a production of Odyssey. Listen and subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.